0: Well, we close out our first John preaching today, and we finish the letter. You can't help but feel like we just kind of finished a show on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or Peacock or CBS All Access or Fox or HBO Max or Disney Plus, whatever it is that you like to watch. And, and now we have that feeling, I think, it's going to happen. You know what I'm talking about? The struggle is real when you finish a show and there's nothing. Fifty-eight episodes, half your life gone, it's over, now what do you do? Sit there on the couch, press the little buttons, flip through the channels, nothing helps. People come by, they try to recommend shows, you're hesitant to try it because you know it won't be just as good, it'll just be meh. You're Googling things like, I liked Live and Maddie, now what can I watch? But in the end, you loved it. You find yourself saying, "Well, what now? What's what's next?" And when we preach as uh, preach on a sermon series, or when we go through a book of the Bible, there's I don't know, maybe there's this unconscious feeling that now that it's over, we kind of put that one away, cross it off the list of books we've gone through, and we just get ready to kind of move on. But when we put it away, we have that, uh, or when we have that, I've gone through that before, way of talking about it, we ignore the heart of this letter that we looked at, 1 John. We have to caution ourselves when we finish either a sermon series or a Bible study or when we're done reading in a way that mirrors everything else in our lives. See, we are not to approach 1 John as entertainment. Can't wait for the sequel, read 2 John, 3 John, and be like, you know what, I prefer the original. It's not like that at all. And today we look at those last nine verses of the text and like all good writers, John did this thing where he told us what he was going to tell us, then he tells us, and then he tells us what, we told, what he told us. And even if you opened up your Bibles and you got the NIV there, you'd see that this last paragraph is called the concluding affirmations. So let's see what we are looking at today as we conclude. Here's verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John concludes with the statement that the essence of the Christian life is eternal life. Not in a Dracula way where you live forever as some sort of cursed or a groundhog day if you prefer Bill Murray, Ghostbusters over Bram Stoker, but in the way that we have heard John speak about. That Jesus the Son possesses eternal life and we have been given that. That here and now today, we have been given a share in the very life of God and that when this mortal body ends, we are going to be with him eternally. For in God there is peace, a peace that passes all human understanding. In God, there is power. He has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity. He has given you a spirit of power, of courage. In God, there is holiness clothed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in God, there is love. This life and all that comes with it for the beloved children, us, has been given to us through Jesus. And we know, he says, we know that this is what we have. 14 and 15 say, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. John says, plainly and simply, God hears us when we pray. He is always listening, more ready to hear than we are to pray. There's no need to try to convince God to hear us, try to force our way in or compel Him. He is waiting for us to come to Him. And when we do, we stand in the very presence of the loving Father and, can be, and we can be confident to speak. John spoke in regard to prayer that it is to be done in obedience. That prayer is not an option, but it's something that we must participate in. And as we pray, we remain in Christ, for we are never apart from him as his children. And all prayer is done in his name in accordance with his will. John gently shows us that prayer must become less about what we want and more about what God wants. In prayer we ask and we speak, but we also must listen. And if we're being honest, I look at this and I think, well, the conclusion of the letter here, I would have expected John to to speak again about loving your brother or sister. But it's interesting that after all the calls to action, he concludes with prayer. Seems a bit passive, kind of, especially with those statements like, if you don't love others, you don't love God. Or to look upon someone in need and not help is a sin. When we think that, we'd be wrong. See, prayer is never passive. John concludes this letter beautifully by saying and calling us to love by praying. And when we look at the examples of prayer, we see a pattern. Let's take Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah was taken out of his home country. He was put into exile. He got put into the um, staff of the king, and he was a little bit nervous to go up to the king and say, can I go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall? He was a little bit nervous that because he had a sad face in front of the king, that the king would kill him and would think that maybe he was conspiring against him wanting to go back to Jerusalem. So what does Nehemiah do? He sends up a quick little prayer. And then he speaks to the king. I'm reminded of Jesus in the garden who said, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. And then he went to the cross, You'd have a hard time finding an example of someone praying for something in the Bible and then that person not doing anything at all. John reminds us that when we pray, the task is not yet completed. How amazing is it when God uses us as a channel of His grace for what we pray? If you think about it, how amazing it is that when we pray for healing for those who are sick, God sends doctors and nurses who work to make it happen. How amazing is it that when we pray for those who are lonely, that they may find hope, that they may find peace, when we arrive to sit with them, or when we pick up the phone and call them or write them a letter and work as the agents of God's grace. How amazing is it when we pray for God to break us from the habits of sin that would keep us from becoming who we are not, And then in that moment of temptation, by the grace of God, we are able to put it down or put it away. See, the life that we have been given in Jesus, a life of confidence, is a life that can be free from the power of sin over us. Not a life that will be free of sin, but free of its controlling power. And in prayer, we line up our lives, our souls, our hearts with the will of God and ask for what He gives. Power peace, strength, and love. We pray and we love, we love and we pray. Verse 16 says, If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Let's leave that up there for just a second there is no doubt that this is a most difficult and in some ways a disturbing passage now we see again the prayer the call for prayer as an act of love but what what is this sin that paul is talking about now the first thing i did when i looked at this was think yeah okay um what is this sin because you know i want to have a good time but i also don't want to go to hell so what can i do what can't i do or I thought about, you know what, this is going to help me because when I can catch my neighbor doing this, then they can be like, I told you, bro, you're going to hell. No, I would never do that. No, no, no. <laughs> so let's approach this for our knowing, right? Now, we might think that perhaps John is talking about mortal sins that are punishable by death here in this life. But I think it's very clear that John hasn't been talking about sins that break human laws, however serious they may be. And I think it's fair to say that this is not about suicide, as if the very last act of our life is what will have the final say of our salvation. I think that belongs to Jesus. So we might spend a little time searching the Bible. Maybe we think it's that time in 1 Corinthians when Paul was telling the people about how they were sinning against the Lord's Supper, how they were abusing and and people were dying. Or perhaps maybe there at the beginning of the letter when Paul was talking about excommunicating or send away the man who continued to sin. But in both cases, none of those would work because both of those punishments were supposed to lead to those souls being restored and saved, not lost. There was the belief that any sins committed after you were baptized would be unforgivable that doesn't match up with the rest of scripture. Unless of course you think you can get baptized 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There was a time when it was thought that if you denied the Lord Jesus at any time in your life, then you would die, then you would be lost. But I remember a certain disciple who denied the Lord and yet was graciously restored. Maybe John is finally hammering home this last point that he's been making about denying Jesus, that Jesus had come in the flesh. I think it's hard to know for certain since John doesn't say exactly here. But maybe if we take the focus off the sin itself and look at where this sin leads as the real issue that he's speaking towards, then I think we find clarity. Two kinds of sinners, right? There's those who sin against their will, meaning like they sin because they were swept away by passion or desire. That moment was just too strong for them. Sin wasn't really a choice. It was just kind of a compulsion they couldn't resist. The other is the one who sins deliberately on purpose, choosing their own way, even though they know it is wrong. Now, I think those sins begin the same way for all of us. And as beloved children, when we do something wrong, we feel regret, right? We feel guilt, we feel remorse. But if we allow ourselves to again and again flirt with temptation and fall, the experience becomes a little easier, does it not? Dangerous when we think we can get away with our sin and that there won't be any consequence keep on sinning and the self-disgust, the remorse, the regret become less and less. Until finally, we have no problem sinning at all. Friends that is the sin that leads to death. When we begin to revel in our sin, make it our way of life, we are on the way to death. On the way to where we no longer want to repent. I think the sin that leads to death is when we begin to love sin more than we love God. I said this was a difficult and disturbing passage because we live with sin in our lives. But thanks be to God that his mercies are new every morning. Thanks be to God that God does not desire the death of sinners but rather that they would turn back to him and thanks be to God that Christ Jesus has not come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. If your sins frighten you, if you are afraid, don't just stand there paralyzed, hiding in the darkness or behind some bush. Run to the cross. Run to the cross. Run to the one who is already waiting for you. And do you not know that he is, not, that he is running towards you? ready to put that cloth on you, that robe, ready to put the ring on your finger and sandals on your feet? Does he not kill the fattened calf for you and welcome you with open arms? That is who we are. That's what it says in 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, an evil one cannot harm them. This does not mean that if we sin, we will never be a part of God's family. We were born of God, not born of sin. You will sin because you are human and you fail, but the one who was born of God will keep you safe. You have been set free, no longer a slave to sin, and it is Christ Jesus Himself who has set you free. You do not look at your life and say, well, my sins versus my good deeds, I don't know, You look at your life and say, I have Jesus Christ. That will be enough for me. Let me not look at my sins, nor let me look at my good deeds. Let me look to the cross of Jesus. Friends, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. Do not let the lies of that pathetic garden snake overtake you and cause you to be afraid. Turn from his distractions. You're looking for a show to watch. You're looking for something to distract you. I know because I do it too. But the Lord is here, waiting for us, ready to give us so much more than 43 minutes of entertainment. He gives us life and hope and love. Look at 19. We are the children of God. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. But we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true by being in Jesus. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, why wait? The Son has come and given us understanding and has given us purpose. There is so much love to be given and so much love that is needed. Love doesn't consist of of extraordinary things, but in doing the ordinary things. The world is under the control of the evil one, but we have been called to heal one, wounds, to unite what has fallen apart, to bring home those who have lost their way. You want to love, but you don't know where to start? Start in your heart with God. Love Him most. Seek Him first. Then move to your home, the people God has placed and given you. Then move to your community, your neighborhood, your work, your school, your team, your church then move to the world. You want to help now? You want to love now? Start with prayer, like John says. Who are you actively praying for? What a gift to be able to pray for other people. You want to love in your home? Start with these questions. If someone walked into my house, would they know that I follow Jesus? If someone listened to the way that I spoke to the people in my house, would they know that I love Jesus? If someone watched the way I interact with the people in my home, would they know that I love Jesus? You want to start loving your community? There are 130 families in a 10-mile radius from this spot, right here, who are a few steps away from having to give up their children into foster care. We cannot pretend that that is not our problem. Help us help them. Help us come alongside these families. Take an active step. Either sign up online or send me an email and I will get you connected with them. Every age can do this. There are 400,000 children in foster care across this country at any given moment. And not all of them are in homes. How long can we look away and pretend that's not our problem? If you are hurting, if you are alone or afraid, and you need care for yourself, we pray for healing and reach out. I know that it is not easy to ask for help. But we have a care community waiting to come alongside you. We have Celebrate Recovery here waiting to walk alongside you. This community was not designed to be a community of show, but a community that strives to love one another. Each and every one of us is welcome here to receive what we need, and each and every one of us is here to give what the Lord has given us. And that takes us to this last verse, this random verse. Look at this. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. This is how he ends his letter. Why end with idols when he hasn't mentioned anything about them, this whole entire letter? What does this final line have to do with anything? You know, John has been teaching and training us in our identity as beloved children of God who love one another. He centers us on Jesus and insists on Jesus' full humanity. John is saying Jesus is personal and has a relational life of love for you, that he came here in the flesh to be with you. John mirrors that, reminds you of your full humanity. One that is broken because you are a sinner but is in need of a personal, relational life with Jesus and a personal, relational life of love with other people. Why idols? Because John is warning uh, warning us against depersonalizing and dehumanizing Jesus and the people that we are in contact with. When you depersonalize someone, you dehumanize them. You do not have to love them. When you make God just an idol, or when you put something before him, or you care more about something else, that's so that we can manipulate it, use it, shape it to our terms. John calls you to the opposite of that. He ends by saying, love is relational. This sermon series may be over, This letter may have concluded, but love for God and love for others never ends. Faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. That series never ends. Love for God, love for others comes back over and over over again. Amen?